Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Double X Gap Fest for Thursday, July 11th. I'm a Creep, I'm Sorry edition. I'm Connor Rosen, a host of NPR's Invisibilia. And in the New York studios, we have June Thomas, a managing producer of Slate Podcasts. Hi, June. Hey, Hannah. And Noreen Malone of New York Magazine. Hi, Noreen. Hi, Hannah. So how are your summers going? Are you guys in summer doldrums like I'm hot every single day and I don't feel like working? Or I'm not in that mode, surprisingly. But I'm just wondering how you guys are doing. Oh, I'm in a great summer mood. Been to the beach a few times. Not wearing pants anymore, exclusively dresses. I'm I'm loving it. What's your New York beach? Just curiosity. Like, what's your New York beach? Of, well, normally I go to um, Fort Tilden or the Rockaways. But over the 4th of July weekend, I went to Long Beach um, in Long Island, which I'd never been to before. Um, I'm not sure why people don't go to it. It's a very suburban feeling beach, but you can get there in an hour on the train. And the waves are super nice. Yeah, I only go to Long Beach. Like I grew oh, up in really? Long Beach. Oh, because you yeah, grew up Queens. in Queens. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, yeah. So my brother has his like, you know, particular corner and particular oh. parking lot. And that's where we go. No, I got to find out where. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you later. I've never been to a beach. And even when I go like to Provincetown, I don't go anywhere near the beach. <laughs> I just stay in town. <laughs> <laughs> But Why I, does that not surprise me? I mean, I never thought about it. Like, I'm just had to visualize you like just <laughs> in a bathing suit with the sand all over your body. <laughs> yeah, believe me, that doesn't happen. I, when I go to Princeton, I usually spend most of my time in the library, which is a lovely library. <laughs> But why? Because it's really nice. What else am I going to do in the daytime? Go to the beach? Yeah, exactly. Oh, man. And uh, But I've been really enjoying the TV uh, and spending time with my cat. And uh, yeah. I'm, so I'm, summer's like winter, really? No, it's because uh, you have the AC on. So, you know, you have to turn the TV up a bit louder. But that's about the only <laughs> difference, really. Hannah, how's your summer going? <laughs> That is really funny. Well, I did use Swedish soap. I, I will oh, say, June, this morning, I found I was shopping this weekend because my mom was here and we were going to various places and I saw the Swedish soap. and I was like, oh, my God, that's June soap. So um, I'm cleaner than I was before and I smell really good today. So <laughs> do you like the scourging? I love all of it. All good, of it. Good, I love good, the good. scourging. I love that kind of subtle smell. Uh-huh. I love the way my hair turns like blonder every time oh. I get out of the shower. Wow. That's not happening. No, it's not happening. <laughs> All right. So from Swedish soap to the apocalypse, our topics. The first one, is the earth in such bad shape? As a recent New York Magazine article argues, so soon to be uninhabitable that you really shouldn't have children. Second, Silicon Valley finally turning the corner on sexism. And third, glow and all the magic it does with sexist and racist stereotypes. And then in our Slate Plus segment, we're going to discuss what else, guys? Vaginal glitter bombs, right? Isn't that yeah, what they're called? That's what they're called. <laughs> it sounds so dangerous. Is our desire to make our lady parts fabulous sexist? It sounds, it sounds, it sounds like it's simultaneously like a power move. And just like a horrible sexist move. Anyway, we'll get to it. Also, if medically a, a terrible idea. 
<laughs> it's probably medically a terrible idea, but who cares? No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> if you are not yet a Slate Plus member, you should be because Slate Plus supports all the great work we do on our podcast as well as the great work Slate does. So you should go to slate.com slash XX Plus and sign up now. All right. Our first topic, the uninhabitable Earth. That's the title of the article, right, Noreen, since it's your magazine? Isn't that what it's called? <laughs> it is yeah. by David Wallace-Wells. Yes, it's a wonderful story. I just want to mention that David Wallace-Wells, as is your habit where you sometimes, when I go on vacation, you, you bring in a man to substitute for me. He has subbed in for me in the past. True and wonderfully. Yeah, yeah. He's always he's a he's a he's a he's a he's a listener and a fan. Yes. Say. He often comments on the show and he has been on the show with us um, and a wonderful person. Anyway, even if you wake up in the middle of the night terrified about rising sea levels, you are not alarmed enough. That's basically the summary. It's like you just can't be freaked out or alarmed enough about what is happening to our Earth. I will name it's a very like he writes it as like like almost like a sober PowerPoint, like <laughs> sub point A, sub Sub point A, humans baking in the heat. Sub point B, drought. Sub point C, unleashing of prehistoric plagues. Sub point D, <laughs> right? death smog. Death smog. <laughs> yes, death smog, which is a punk band and also something that's <laughs> going to happen to all of us. Death smog of unbreathable air. Um, and uh, so before we get to the question which came up for us in discussing and reading this, which is can you bring children into this mess? Let's just spend a second discussing the article, because I think a lot of the debate around the article was like, is this doomsday way of approaching the climate disaster like helpful? You know, like, does it just put you into paralysis? Like, just just what can I just ask you guys? What was the just pure emotional, visceral response you had when reading this piece? Did you like were you backing away? Were you diving in? Just kind of what was your approach to this, to reading this pileup of coming apocalypse? Well, can we first clarify the premise of the article, which is that he took um, basically the worst possible scenario, right? That that we do nothing to curb any of our carbon emissions, that the Earth continues to warm at these unprecedented rates, right? So this is, he spoke to a number of scientists who and asked them like, okay, what's the worst that could happen if nothing, you know, if we do nothing? So this isn't necessarily a likely scenario, I don't think he would argue, but nor is it unlikely, right? Given what's happening with current climate change. Although, um, when he, when he, did he mean like like do nothing as in Trump 2017, like rollback of particular climate policies? Or did he mean like we'd have to really dismantle every climate policy that has ever been put in place around the world, including by other countries and various accords? No, I think it's like Trump 2017. It's like our current, if we continue in our current trajectory, this is what happens. Yeah, that was how I understood it too. Um, so that's realistic. Yeah. That's not unrealistic. <laughs> that, that's like a likely scenario, not an, unless it, unless we mean the whole world, because like we're just one place and there's lots of other places that are fantastic polluters and that have not necessarily rolled back every single thing that they do. Well, I mean, and the, the, the U.S. even isn't just Trump. I mean, the as he mentions, the armed forces have always been really, really conscious of climate change and have done a lot to, you know, take it into consideration when making plans. So, you know, yes, Trump rolling back. Paris, which he claims won't make any difference anyway, but other people and efforts going on in the US, you know what I mean? So it's it all balances out. And it, it really doesn't seem all that unrealistic to me that that we would not make any big changes. We the world, not just we the USA. Okay, but emotional response to this. Yes. Um, 
my first emotional response was that I refused to read this for a long time. <laughs> I knew it was coming and I knew some sort of details from it. And um, I don't watch horror movies. I don't like to sort of dwell on sad things for longer than I need to. So I was like, I'm sitting this one out. Uh, and then I finally made myself read it. And I had um, just uh, I was a little overwhelmed because you haven't. So this posits a scenario in which the world is so completely changed within our lifetimes, right? Which is not how I grew up thinking about climate change. I grew up thinking about climate change like, okay, it's going to be a slow, gradual warming. Our grandchildren's grandchildren might start to really suffer some of the, uh, some of the consequences. And the acceleration of this in just the past few years within my adult lifetime is really quite frightening. And to think about being at the end of a species, at the end of a civilization is a really wild thing to hold inside of you, right? Like you've spent so much of your life thinking about history and how civilization came up to this point and, you know, the religiosity of, of our civilization. And then all of a sudden to like think about the end, not just your own end, but the end of like whatever will, you know, be on this earth after you. It's really just a big, big, big philosophical question. Yeah. So yeah. I, yeah, I would say that I felt overwhelmed. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in what you think, Hannah. Mother of children. Um, we'll get to the children in a minute. Um, so he talks in the in the story about novel uh, novelist Amitav Ghosh writing about why there are no great novels about climate change. Mm -hmm. And I I have an imagination problem. I will fully <laughs> admit I have an imagination problem. You know, which is why I have three children. But I just cannot. My I I read this article and I can't, I can't like I can't. It it it. Uh, this is I just can't my imagination doesn't naturally follow the dots. It hmm. just doesn't, you know, and so I, it's kind of becomes flat for me immediately. Um, I just I just kind of like I when I read Ross, I want to believe Ross Douthat, who's like he's not a climate denier, but when he another man who's been on our show and when he when he writes about climate change, he's like, I'm not a denier. I understand all these scenarios, but the earth is resilient and, you know, human beings have found themselves out of fixes a lot of different times. And so like, I'm like, do, 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 do. That sounds good. You know, <laughs> that like, is such that's... A, that's such a faith based viewpoint, though, yeah. not not in the like religiosity sense of it, just like a, a worldview informed by uh, a belief that something will come through that humans are, are so wonderful. And I, you know, that's a that's I think what we should all aspire to. And, and like something we'll maybe talk about when we get to the kids portion. But that's so unrealistic. <laughs> Yeah. Yes, it's unrealistic. I would say the only time I'm the only thing for some reason that activates my imagination are books about Mars. You know, like huh. like there's been actually some novels. I just read this book, The Wanderers, and it's about some astronauts who are, you know, essentially being prepared to it's it's like a fake voyage to Mars. They're preparing about what it would be like. They're putting them in the conditions that would arise. And that I'm actually able to sneak in the back door that way <laughs> when I see that like people and novelists like people are actually just like able to are, are starting to think about the exit plan, um, that then I get alarmed wow. and I get freaked out. Um, See, I, so that's I, not so healthy, but I, I'm, I'm not usually prone to like doom and gloom, but it all just like this worst case scenario seems all too probable to me, partly because like just, you know, in my little tiny world, when I see things like just the way, for example, that the New York subway 
which was perfectly fine, has just suddenly gone to crap this <laughs> that, year. That has nothing to do it's with nothing climate to do, change. It's nothing to do with the earth or climate change, but it's just an example of how things change very quickly. When things go wrong, it's like a big cascading effect and it happens really quickly. And yeah, I'm not, not comparing precisely the fate of the earth and the state of the New York subways, but just you see the way that things seem like seems like they're fine. You can see a few things that might just go wrong, a few just, you know, cracks in the and then suddenly it all just collapses. And and, you know, I've, I see that I've seen that at various points in my life and I don't see why what we're doing to the earth would be any different. There's no movie which goes through, my daughter just watched it, which goes through the various specific scenarios of what happens to every city during the climate apocalypse. I think New York is like, a, it's it's a water thing. It's like a, yeah, well, I mean, as, as David points out, many, you know, most, in fact, of the great cities of the world are on water. Uh, and, you know, because of the history of ports and so on and so forth. And, and so, uh, yeah. Well, to me, the most frightening thing about this piece that I hadn't, I guess, reckoned with fully. Like I've thought about the, you know, the ice caps melting and New York flooding, but um, the the what resource scarcity will do mm. to sort of literally hotspots in the world um, and not nothing good, <laughs> spoiler yeah. alert. Um, yeah. And, you know, many of the scientists that David spoke to, I guess, were wary of connecting recent upticks in violence in the Middle East, for instance, to anything having to do with climate change. But you could make that connection. You could draw that connection and you could say that, you know, and then that has led to to this refugee crisis that that has, uh, you know, certainly influenced the politics of Europe and America, which in turn have influenced climate change. I mean, you can you can really spin it all out in this horrible way and connect to everything if you're inclined to. Yeah, the refugee crisis convinces me. Like if you zoom out in the world and you see these like mass migrations of people mm-hmm. from places that are scarce and fighting to places that aren't, that seems apocalyptic to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a woman named Madeline Ostrander who wrote... Um, how do you decide to have a baby when climate change is remaking life on Earth? This was a story in The Nation, which um, a friend of mine who is deep in this dilemma brought to my attention. Um, and, you know, it's fairly compelling. Like, I think the worst thing you can do in terms of, you know, carbon legacy is have a child. Like, that's just true. You know, having no, children No, the is worst not- thing you can do in terms of a carbon legacy is run a Fortune 500 company, <laughs> not have a child. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> for the average person, <laughs> for the average. I just want to person. state for the record that it's capitalist problem, capitalism's problem. Well, that's not. that's actually it's important that you corrected that because in some ways I feel like this is like <laughs> this conversation we're about to have is like yet another way for women to take kind of personal responsibility and personally agonize, which which is a great habit of us mm-hmm. of ours, um, rather than look at the kind of larger st- systemic problem. So it is it is actually good that you said that because we're about to dive into a conversation in which women kind of accept on their shoulders the personal responsibility for this um, this uh, massive disaster. But Noreen, is this something your friends talk about? Like, do people actually... Uh, my friends do, actually, my younger friends. I have a handful of younger friends who are just, like, agonized about this. Um, and so I wonder if, if it's a thing for you. Yeah, people, people do talk about it. Um, and I think that in the past couple years certainly it has become um maybe just because i'm getting to an age where more people are actually having babies and it's so it's less theoretical but also i think because the news has has changed so much on the climate change front that people do say this and it's not 
like people have said this for years, right? I don't want to bring children into this world. It's so horrible. And that has always struck me as so self-righteous and um, just kind of a weird framing of it um, and and like unhelpfully pessimistic about the state of the world. Um, but reading, you know, reading this article, uh, it, it it makes it feel concrete, right? That that it is not just like, oh, they'll have to experience the pain of Donald Trump. It's like, no, they might, um, you know, not they, they might walk outside and, and their insides might be baked. Often when I read the, the particular struggles of women in this situation, it feels to me that it's a struggle between the part of themselves that embraces like joy and maybe careless joy and the part of themselves that is serious and, you know, takes responsibility for the world and kind of sees the darkness. Like it feels like an internal battle like that, like which side of me is going to win. Yeah, that sounds right. I guess I would I would draw a little bit of a distinction between. So I think there are two reasons you could, you know, potentially say I'm not going to have kids because of climate change. One is that you believe that, you know, children are contributing to the carbon footprint in this, um, you know, horrible way. And you don't you don't want that burden on your shoulders, right, that you brought another um, carbon producer into the world, <laughs> little bundle of carbon. Um, <laughs> or two is that you, you know, don't want to inflict pain on, on your future or imaginary children. And I guess I am more sympathetic to the second reading of that than to the first one. Again, I think um, these the systemic causes of climate change are so much bigger that you having your 1.5 children um, and driving your hybrid car probably is not going to tip the world over, right? I think there's a weird kind of a self-importance to that, that you, you, you are statistically insignificant, right? Like, you can recycle. It'll make you feel good. It's better if more people recycle. But but it's not going to like reverse this tide. It's it's these um, public policy things. Susan Matthews wrote a, a good a response to the piece in Slate, in which you know she points. She's the science editor, and she you know she often says like this is beyond what any one person can do. It's not about whether you recycle. It's not about whether you know you have a coal fire. It's it's about people sort of taking this seriously and making changes and you know being act being activists essentially and just pointing out that we need to make a change and really, um, you know, making it a priority. And that felt, you know, useful. All right. Well, uh, listeners, if you have thought about this question, should I have children because of climate change, because of coming apocalypse, if you've thought about it in any way, please write to us at doublexgabfest at slate.com or go on our Facebook page or tweet at us at xxgabfest and let us know your thoughts about this topic. Um uh, we are going to move on to our next topic, but I want to leave you with uh, Noreen's wise words on this topic, which is you are statistically insignificant. <laughs> and don't ever forget it. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
Our next topic, Silicon Valley, has a gender equity problem and a sexual harassment problem. And we've talked about that plenty on this show. But now it seems to be shifting, or maybe it's shifting. That's what we'll discuss. There was like a mini revolt. Um, It started, most people date it back to when Susan Fowler, who was an employee at Uber, wrote a blog post just on her own personal blog about her experiences at Uber. We talked about that a few shows back. And that has started a cascade, a teeny tiny cascade, maybe a couple of dozen women who have come forward, given names, bravely given names and specifics of certain men who have done certain things to them. And that has caused a bunch of the men to apologize. We'll also discuss the apologize, the apologies. And these are, you know, these are the untouchable VCs, the kind of all dominant venture capitalists who everyone depends on for money and thus enjoy a kind of godlike status in Silicon Valley. So what did you guys think of the details of what the women were describing? I mean, it's it's the stuff that happens in Silicon Valley that we've heard about before. Right. Can you guys just characterize a little bit sort of it was a as a group of women and and what was their basic what was the basic claims they were making? Well, it's slightly different, right, because many of these women were describing a situation in which they had been they were entrepreneurs and they were pitching venture capitalists um, yeah. asking so them not for your, investments. Not your typical. Right. It's not an employee relationship, yeah. um, which was the case with Susan Fowler when she felt harassed. Um, and so the power imbalance is super fascinating in that situation. Mm-hmm. And also the way in which many of those deals happen is over drinks late at night, kind of like it, it's like a good old boys club, except women are there, too. And you're pitching. And that just is apparently a recipe for disaster. And I can see how that would be the case. Right. If you're blending social. I'm not excusing it. I'm just saying, like, I can I can picture this happening where you're blending a social situation. One person maybe doesn't think of himself. That that was what became clear from reading these articles, that these guys didn't necessarily understand the power imbalance or at least pretended not to understand mm-hmm. the power imbalance. Um, they thought they were just, you know, this is a pretty woman. I'm going to hit on her. <laughs> when in fact, they were, you know, both sort of uh, hitting on them and also like either investing or not investing. Mm-hmm. And um so that struck me as slightly different than other other cases we've talked about recently. Yeah, and, and, and in a way that made it all the more surprising in a sense that the women came forward. I mean, the I think I can't remember which one of the situations it was, but um, you know, one of the women described how you know she said that um, if she was told that if she came forward, uh, you know, she would be, you know, blackballed, yeah. blackballed. Which you know, I thought, yeah, she really needed telling that. You know, like mm. she, she probably had a pretty good idea that if she, you know, went public with what had happened to her, it wouldn't work out well for her. Because, as you say, like the key seems to be that this is not an HR typical workplace situation. This is this weird Silicon Valley world where all of these, you know, entrepreneurs in a sense are gods. But then actually there's this level of like super gods who are the people with money who make it happen. And to those of us in more normal worlds, it seems really, really weird and crazy and uh, just a strange way of making a living. On the other hand, like it's super valorized, you know, uh, there's these people you can, again, not to excuse it in any way, shape or form, but it's it doesn't take a lot of imagination to see how it happens because these men, and, and as everybody says, they're pretty much all men who are, you know, going out there with their big wallets full of money uh, looking for people to invest in. 
they're the way that they are treated you know makes them lose sight of like the real world boundaries and the way that actual humans are supposed to behave well and also the line between flattery and flirting right is a is a thin one <laughs> sometimes non-existent and if you're sitting there pitching someone you kind of have to mm. you you have to like flatter them probably yeah, so it's, right it's a kind of a seduction right and so you know maybe <laughs> these guys aren't so good at understanding the difference between someone pitching them and someone flirting with them. Again, not excusing it, just thinking about how this scenario seems to come up so much. Um, and then and then they are so, like, egomaniacal that they think it must be flirting. It can't possibly just be someone, like, doing the thing that you need to do when you're <laughs> trying to get funding. And because the gender is, you know, because it's a woman, they, they like, lose sight of that fact. Shoot us down, Hannah. No. <laughs> No, no, what Noreen just said is why I actually think the Silicon Valley stories are really important and I watch them really closely because Fox News, you know, that was a horror freak show, but it feels like a horror freak show from like 40 years ago. Mm. You know that they've just kind of kept a cap on like when you read about Roger Ailes and his M.O. and how he moves through the place and even the particular things he says, it feels old fashioned, you know, mm-hmm. and in fact, like worlds of power, like the finance world, even though it's a total patriarch has moved a long way. Like when you talk to women who first entered finance in the 80s, like the shit they had to deal with, like the guys, the strippers and bringing people into hotel rooms, it's like they had to deal with a lot. And so it's somewhat depressing to me that like every center of power Mm -hmm. that is birthed in history starts with this massive imbalance. Like it starts with this massive sexism and then it's kind of a long road to erode it. So whereas the stuff that happens in Silicon Valley, and I really want to talk about the like the exact way the men apologized. Oh <laughs> yeah, me too. Like, how they like how they like didn't they don't quite get the line between flirting. There's something about the particular nature of these men, the particular way that power manifests the fact, the savviness of the women and the fact that they're in the room, plus like the social media, like the fact that this broke on someone's personal blog post is what kind of shook this loose. Um, and there is some comeuppance. It's not like exactly what we would want, you know, but there is some kind of public shaming that happens. It just feels very 2017 and like a fight that really, really, really needs to be fought because it's more like how sexual harassment is going to go down from now on, you know, yeah. than what happens happens at Fox News. Well, and at Fox, there weren't really apologies, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and, no payoffs. And, payoffs, right. And all of these guys took to Medium to, yes. uh, to pen their response to this. And I just, I think that they did come from a good place. I will say that. But they struck me as <laughs> universally defensive. And one of the guys even kept saying, I understand that I was defensive. And it was like, no, bro, you're still defensive. Stop using the past tense there. It, so let's let's sorry. I'm rustling papers trying to find this. But um, how about I'm a creep? I'm a creep. I'm, a creep. I'm, I'm sorry. What's <laughs> the medium? I'm a creep. I'm sorry. I'll, I, by now, you may have heard I fucked up and people are calling me a creep. Someone's going to do a one woman show. Just reading these <laughs> apologies. Uh, that. <laughs> Let it be so you. Good. Let it be you. <laughs> Let it be me. They're so good. Oh. While I'd like to believe that I'm not a bad or evil person, which, by the way, everyone in Silicon Valley, like, that's an understatement. Like, they believe they're saving the world. It's not that they just are like, hey, I'm a good guy. They're like, I'm saving the motherfucking world over here. Like, why are you bothering me? You know? Um <laughs> It's clear that some of my past actions in the past, right. now I'm a good dude again, have hurt or offended several women. So, like, you know, and I probably deserve to be called a creep. That is so Probably. Like, ha- probably. Like, probably. 
Although, you know, props to his headline writing, because that was a great headline, you know. <laughs> I'm a creep. But he's not the only one. No. I, so my personal favorite is actually I Have More Work to Do by Chris Saka on Medium. <laughs> um, I love that so much. I have more work to do. So Because what he means is like, can I just go back to work? But, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so the context on this one is that he published this before the New York Times article. And then he had to go back and do an addendum because he'd actually been accused of something like he just published just like I wasn't a good, a good enough guy like I didn't speak up when I saw other people being harassed like my behavior as a young person in this industry probably contributed to him like very vague very woke and then he like was like in in the update he was like that woman is lying like I, I didn't do anything <laughs> right. there may but, have been a lawsuit uh, suggested or something yeah but um but my favorite part of of um I have more work to do by Chris Saka is uh Subheading three, I will continue to evolve my language and be aware of my biases and the biases of others when it comes to women. Um, and this begins within days of when my first daughter was born. A mountain of pink gifts started showing up at our house. Otherwise, well-intentioned friends and relatives repeatedly called her princess. And he sort of goes through his understanding of how the world treats women differently than men. And he um, he. By the way, shout out Peggy Orenstein. He really liked your book, Cinderella <laughs> Ate My Daughter. It meant a lot to his, you know, coming of age as a feminist. Um, so I, I, there's just like a, there's a performative wokeness yeah, big, to big this. Yeah, and and like, on the one hand, it's good that they're apologizing. On the other hand, it's so egotistical and um, not apologetic. Yeah, I, let me tell you my favorite. What my favorite was the one by Mark Cantor uh-huh. and um, his uh, included the line. Wait, read the headline is the new normal. The new normal. I, I think there's a res- <laughs> certain resentment in uh, in the the headline, the new normal. He doesn't yeah. totally love it. So my and it, here's the second sentence of the new normal by Mark Cantor. It was stupid and was one of those Mark Cantor moments. <laughs> I love that so much. Where my and, where my unfiltered flow of sarcastic, unconventional communication and behavior backfired on me. You know, oh, I, I've. <laughs> You know, I'm not going to lie. I've had Mark Cantor moments. Sure. You know, but <laughs> which is one of them was propositioning someone for a three, threesome. threesome. The first time he met her. Yeah. Unconventional communication and behavior, man. Yeah, it backfires sometimes. Yeah. You know what the problem is with these as you guys are talking? It's like the problem is that the performative wokeness gets in the way of actual reform, right? They're like, they're like, oh, I got to go on social media. I got to sound like a certain kind of person. But like the resentment and the defensiveness and the like, and the actual difficult way that this particular world operates, which is like, it's boundaryless. It, it, it like really embraces this idea that there are no rules and everybody can do what they want to do, you know? And so like there is, it is actually difficult to change this culture. So rather than just themselves like plug into a particular set of rules that are out there and sort of say the words that they, that they should just say, like the next phase of this should be like everyone getting down and dirty and being like, okay, given the values that we hold in Silicon Valley, the, the kind of like way we like to be, because if you have a culture with no rules, like how, how are you supposed to fix Stuff like they don't really believe in HR. They don't right. really believe in sexual harassment. Like they just don't really actually believe that. That's like that's for like lame people, yeah. you know. That's for the corporate world. So like, how do you how do you how do you fix how do you get into that? Well, there was a suggestion in "I'm a creep. I'm sorry." Um, that that um, he was now the firm that he worked for was now and had according to him, had always, but was now really going to double down on efforts to invest um, in 
companies uh, run by women of peop- and people of color. And I think that's ultimately the only way that this gets to be a better industry for women and people of color as for the the ratios to be switched. Yeah, I mean, that was my, my thought before I actually got to that section of his <laughs> uh, mea culpa was like, okay, you guys are rich. You know what? Your apologies on Medium are not doing me any good, but you can afford to make reparations. Let's like, like, let's show, let show me how sorry you are. Mm-hmm. Do something. All right. So, do you guys actually think? Are you buying that this is a moment and things are like? Are you does this does this feel like a big thing? I mean, we don't really any of us know the culture of Silicon Valley well enough, probably to answer this question with a huge amount of authority. But just, um, I was very helpful about it. But mm-hmm. I just wonder if you know, if you're a woman who's fo- has followed Silicon Valley for a long time, are you like, ah, nothing's going to happen to these? guys. There's certainly not going to be any legal ramifications. It's just going to be like a tiny little moment of um, of kind of self-directed shame. And then they'll just like slink away and get a job at another VC firm. My impression is that people within the industry, women within the industry or who cover the industry felt like this was an important step, particularly people coming forward and naming names. And I do think, you know, it, these these apologies are obviously imperfect, as we have gleefully mocked, mm-hmm. but it does feel like an important step and like even acknowledgement that this is wrong and this sort of public shaming to go back to our, our Ross the conversation. But but like, I guess in this instance, shame is um, shame might might do something good. Yeah. And, you know, in this world, you are as successful as your last deal. You know, you have to you have to do well for your, you know, with your funds or for the company that you're part of. And so ultimately, that's what they'll be judged on. But this, um, yeah, it seems positive. I don't see how it can be negative. But maybe we'll, you know, maybe we'll learn about that there was a negative sort of aspect to this. But um, yeah, it, it seems right now from the outside to be yeah, a good, a good, a good turning point. Yeah, to me, it's just the breaking of the of the kind of internal loop that seemed to have been going on in a lot of the women's minds who work out there, which is like, I can't talk because it's not good to talk. It's not going to be good for my career. Like, no one's going to take it seriously. It's like, it's a little bit like the Cosby moment. Like, it, it's just, it just, there's a tipping point and it just has to flip where like enough people come out and say what happened that that it ends that loop. Yeah. Um, and, and you just kind of air it. So even even just that little tiny thing is useful. Yeah. All right. Go, ladies of Silicon Valley. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Let's move on to our next topic. I'm so excited to talk about GLOW. Do you know I didn't know it stood for the gorgeous ladies of wrestling? Or I'd forgotten that. Anyway, there was a 1980s syndicated women's professional wrestling circuit called GLOW, the gorgeous ladies of wrestling. And this is a fictionalized account of how that TV series came to be made which is just kind of a weird and genius idea for a Netflix show. Um, it's created by Liz Flayhive and Carly Mensch. It is supported by Genji Cohan, who's the behind Orange is the New Black the producer. And uh, it stars, it's got a great cast, yeah. really. Alison Brie as Ruth. Um, uh, Brittany Young, one of my favorites, is Carmen. Mark Marin, who, who plays the kind of 
cheesy sleazy um, director of the show, Sidel Noel as uh, Junk Chain, which is the best name I think of all the Isn't girls. She Cherry? Junk Chain, Cherry Junk Chain. Oh, um, I see. oh in Junk the Chain. Ring, she kind of I goes see. as Junk Thank Chain. You. Yeah. You, anyway, so um, so so the thing I think the thing that is it it is really interesting about the show, and probably which we will discuss the most, is is what it does with stereotypes. Um, sexist and racist stereotypes, stereotypes in general that are the kind of bread and butter of wrestling. So maybe we'll start by just talking about how the show opens because it opens so much in our wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. You know, it kind of signals to us uh, what what kind of show it's going to be and what it's going to talk about. Um, who wants to describe the opening scene with Alison Brie? So I can. So the first scene is, as you say, Hannah, this very feminist scene where Alison Brie is doing an audition. And her character, Ruth, is doing a really great job. And you can see, oh, my God, she's going to get this gig. <laughs> oh, I just want to say thank you so much for bringing me in for this. There are not roles like this for women right now. It's really, ooh, <laughs> it's really great. You're reading the man's part. And then we learn that she's actually reading the man's words, which are just setting up the dumb things that the woman is supposed to say in this uh, script. And so she's, she's, not, she's not doing it accidentally. She's doing it because she just wants to sort of prove a point to the people in the room who have really no power, because they too are women in the industry, that, uh, that women's parts are terrible and that men get all the good lines. But later, a couple of, I don't know if it's the same scene or just a few minutes later, uh, she's in the bathroom afterward and she waits for the casting director uh, when she comes into the bathroom. And she says, you know, can you just tell me I'm not getting these roles? What's up? And the casting director admits, well, you know, when the director says he's looking for someone real, I bring you in so he can see that that's not what he wants at all. And that's both brilliant and, it, you know, as you say, Hannah, it feeds us feminist viewers knowing that we're, you know, getting to see a show that, that is feeding us the kind of things that we want to see. Um, and it also really informs Ruth's character. And it's, it really is a fantastic setup, um, even though it's a little different from what comes ahead because there's no wrestling yet. Yeah, just qualitatively, the first episode was not my favorite. Like, I, for me, the series gets better and better as it goes on, as they really start to wrestle and deal with the physicalities of it and the kind of minor, sometimes petty dramas between everyone. Um, but it's 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 an interesting, interesting setup. Mm -hmm. Well, so I only made it two and a half episodes in, I will admit, um, because I started watching later than you guys did. But I'm not as sold as 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 you all are, and I um, and I wonder if it's because it becomes more complicated as it goes on. It becomes more interesting. It plays with these stereotypes more. But it felt to me like it was perfectly enjoyable. But it wasn't. It didn't seem that sharply funny to me. It felt sort of simple, right? Like it felt almost. It didn't. It didn't feel like an indie TV show to me. It felt like a like a fun summer blockbuster that they were stretching over however many episodes, right? And I guess I just didn't, it didn't feel sharp yet to me. And I and I wonder if I'm just off base. No, I think that was a little bit my experience too. Like I would have watched it anyway, because I mean, I watched all 10 episodes over a weekend when it first came out and just like for something to watch, mm -hmm. you know, when it's hot outside. And I think that if it had been an old school TV show where, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, where you get half hour every week and you just keep coming back. Maybe I wouldn't have, uh, you know, kept coming back for what became, I don't know if it ever really gets super nuanced, but it gets, it definitely gets very much more fun and just, there's just Fighting. kind of a lot going on. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, but I think that's actually a problem with Netflix shows. Even some of the Netflix shows that I've really enjoyed this summer, like the beginning, you're, it's not like you're having to force yourself through them. It's not, they're not in any way bad, but they get so much better as you, you kind of keep, you know, you just don't stop it from playing the next episode. Mm-hmm. And that just feels like it's kind of something that's embaked in, in Netflix shows. Oh, my God. Can I do my defense of Glow? Because I'm enjoying it so much. Yeah. It's. <laughs> just um so so this is this is how glow works on me um so first of all i grew up with like wrestling all over my like my dad was a huge wrestling fan uh-huh. um so stone cold steve austin like these these characters when wrestling started entering characters they were just like in my life you know mm-hmm. and i never understood it like i was so outside it and i just um and I just approached it like, "What? This is fake. This is fake." You know. So, um, so Aunt Mark Maron interviews some of the cast members, and he also interviews some of the writers on the show. And one of the people he interviews is this guy Chavo Guerrero, who's a uh, who's uh, who's from an old-fashioned Mexican wrestling family. And he kind of describes. And he like, was the wrestling the, coach for the for the show. And right? he was the wrestling coach for the show, right? Exactly. And it's like the way that they handle basically stereotypes like the way that the way that basically you kind of move through them in order to reclaim them or something like there's there's just a way in which you embrace them and embrace that there's this like visceral culture that just wants everyone to be a certain way and it's very like soap operas or something well, like physicality it's like you like there's a there's a woman for example who's indian on the show who they make her play the arab and there's this whole discussion about like whether she has to hold the gun and be like a real terrorist or kind of a fake terrorist. It's like, it's terrible, right? And Mark Maron is perfect in embodying this kind of like, dirty sexist bastard who's kind of wise enough to to know what he's doing and how to sell it to the girls but also is sleeping with one of the girls in the cast you know he's just like everything at once he's perfectly cast he well, yeah um, he, he was really great. i mean and the other thing about that i mean and i think that's one thing that you haven't really gotten to that yet uh because when it, when we get to the wrestling they do get given these personalities you know for the show which since it's new to everybody they don't really get that you that there are personalities and that there are roles. But then you see them building this and, and the women are, are like, I don't want to do that. That seems like a terrible idea. And they're really, you know, trying to avoid it and they they feel bad about it. And then they get in front of people for the first time. And that is exactly what people want. And so in a way, you are giving the people what they want. They're terrible stereotypes. They're terrible um, so, so what do you what you guys were saying is you like it when they become stereotypical? No, but that's the thing. See, it's that's like, the it's thing. like you just have to own it. It's like simultaneously humiliating and empowering. Like it just is in that. You know what helped me love this show? One of the people that Mark Barron interviews is Kia Stevens, who's she plays the welfare queen mm-hmm. on the show, and it's like she's like, "What the fuck? Like I'm the welfare queen?" You mm-hmm. know, um, <laughs> my son at Stanford is not going to like this <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And she's the only one in the cast who's an actual wrestler. Mm-hmm. Like, she's a well-known wrestler. And she, in the interview with Mark Marin, was talking about how she went to Japan, which is where her wrestling career took off. And they, they named her the Awesome Kong, like, without even asking her. Like, they just put that in the promo materials. This is her actual life. This is not the show now. Wow. And she was like, what the fuck? Like, what did I just walk into? Like, and she's a person who's, like, done all this work in the community. Like, before she became a wrestler, she was, like, a social worker working at this <laughs> women's home. And, you know, she worked on AIDS stuff. I mean, she's, like, this, you know, awesome 
person. The interview is just so awesome, by the way. You really should listen to it. But but it's, you know, but then she just kind of like moved through it and realized that like Kong was this name that you used in Japan as an honorific and she was going to reclaim it. And she she claims, now this is probably apocryphal, but that she was listening to an NWA song because at first she was like, I'm not doing it. I'm not going there. But she was listening to an NWA song and she was like, I can, I'm going to take this, like I'm going to make this an awesome thing. Is what I'm saying like so just unprogressive? and insulting can you well, guys well, tell well, here's the thing, it like, just is the way that wrestling works and it's just interesting it's just interesting it's not a solution for sexism and racism it's just interesting I mean you know? and the, the way that they manage that in the show that I think you know we've only talked about how these stereotypes are established the crowd really responds but the the reason that it is not offensive that it actually seems empowering is that we see the kind of behind the scenes or before they're in the ring, we see outside the ring where the women themselves who are going to be playing these roles reject them and know that that is not what they are. You know, the Indian American woman who's playing like a Lebanese terrorist is not a terrorist. She knows that this is really not a cool thing for, you know, the white people in the audience to interpret a person with brown skin as a terrorist at the same time. She still does it because, A, she needs to make some money because she's a pre-med student, but also that there is something empowering about being a group of women doing a physical thing in front of a you know gigantic uh, room full of people. And so that we see both the stereotype and, you know, how sad it is that America or the world, you know, puts people into barrels. But we also see that, that those stereotypes are nonsense and that the women themselves reject them and are much, much more than that. And so that that feels like the reason that it's not offensive and that it kind of works and that it's... And in a very organic way, like it's yeah. not Orange is the New Black flashback style. Right, right, it's right. like literally just happening as they're holed up together in this hotel in teeny tiny moments, you know, like when she is studying at the desk and then orders a pizza so that her roommate, who's really into the pizza guy, can like have a date with the pizza guy. You just, like, it's just like you catch a glimpse of her studying and doing like the kindest girlfriend act ever, right. you know, and then just kind of slipping out the door. It's just like these little organic moments that happen as they're holed up in the room together. Yeah. It's it, like, it's not the world's greatest show, but it's super fun. And it was Emily Nussbaum had a nice description of it, which was that it's 10 episodes of pure silly string joy. Like it deals with real issues, but in a kind of a, a silly context. Um, and there is a lot of fun in it. I, too, Hannah, was uh, I grew up watching a lot of wrestling in England, of course. So it was in England. It came out on Saturday afternoons um, after all the real sports and before the football results for the pools uh, um, <laughs> for people who did the pools. And I, as I was watching Glow, I, they had some, they had two of the women go to a real uh, wrestling, you know, real being men's uh, wrestling event to kind of see, and that, which is becomes kind of a breakthrough because they see, oh, this is what wrestling is, that it, that it does involve all this acting and, and some physicality and, and they kind of get a better sense of it from watching the men. Uh, but as they went into a dressing room after the bout, uh, there were some posters on the door, which for some reason were British posters from British wrestling events from the 80s. And there were people on there that I recognize. And I like flashback to seeing like Kendo Nagasaki, who was a white guy <laughs> uh, playing uh, a, a Japanese warrior who was, a, who was a masked wrestler. And I remembered like the feelings that I had as a kid when I was watching him one Saturday and he got unmasked. 
And like, how crazy was that, that this silly, you know, Netflix comedy brought up these nostalgic feelings for this, you know, very significant Saturday afternoon when I was a kid. All right, I'll give it another chance. You don't have to. It might not be your No, I will. I will. It's not everybody's thing. It sounds like it gets better. Yeah, it definitely does. All right. Well, uh, let us know if you liked Glow, listeners. I personally love it. I love shows about subcultures like Weird Worlds. I just love the fact that they pitched this at Hollywood meetings and got it through. Like, all that makes me happy. Um, but let us know what you think. Okay. So let's move on to our recommendations. Noreen, what do you have for us? I want to recommend uh, a book by Ilif Badaman. I think that's how you say her name, called The Idiot. And... Um, It is the story of a character who is, you know, a thinly veiled version of Batman herself as a freshman in college in the 90s at Harvard. Um, And it is really quite diaristic. Um, There's not much of a plot. She likes a boy. She's not sure if he likes her back. She goes to Hungary to follow the boy. Um, But she is such a... Such a... um, funny writer and she does so well at capturing the sort of awkward awkwardness social awkwardness of that age but also the big thinking the wrestling of these big questions like what is love you know like and taking academics very seriously and i found it so charming um it gets a little baggy at the end i'm not super into the trip to hungary but um (laughs) but i really love her voice and um recommend it i sort of tore through it at the beach there was i just want to mention there was a really uh, good episode of i have to ask which is isaac chotner's interview podcast at slate uh when he spoke with batuman and she was a really interesting um person for him to talk to. So oh, I recommend that episode. I'll listen to that. She's such a beautiful writer. Yeah. And you know, while we're talking about Slate Podcasts, I also want to recommend Dear Prudence. I think that, you know, Dear Prudence, of course, is is Slate's uh, advice column. It's been going since very early in the magazine's existence. And there have been several Prudies over the years. Uh, the latest Prudy is the wonderful Mallory Ortberg founder, of course, of The Toast. And she is a fantastic advice giver. Uh, People really love her on the magazine. And I'm not sure that quite so many people are aware of her as a podcaster. So yeah, people should check out the Dear Prudence podcast. But my recommendation today, Hannah, is the TNT show Claws, which I love so much. I was on the Culture Gab Fest a couple of weeks ago, and we discussed it there. And Uh, It's just, it's such a great show. It is about, um, the lead actress is Niecy Nash, who you might know from Reno 911 and other shows. And uh, she plays this sort of den mother owner of this kind of down at heels uh, nail salon uh, in a strip mall in Florida. Uh, And she's involved um, somewhat uh, reluctantly with a, a, a sort of a, basically a scam. We don't need to really go into the details. Uh, But the world uh, of the characters is heightened. It's not a realistic show. But I love everything about her character, Desna, and the salon and the other women who work there. Uh, It's just really a fantastic portrait of a community, a little community. And she's just amazing. So Claws on TNT, which is airs on Sunday night, I, I defy you not to enjoy it. That sounds great. Have you watched The Bold Type, by the way? No, it only started this week. It only started uh, yesterday, I believe. Did you watch it? I didn't, but I really want to. Yeah, um, it's too. about fictional writers at Fictional Cosmo, and <clears throat> it's gotten really good reviews. Yeah. 
oh, man, I have so many. I don't know which way to go, like the novel, the podcast, the sociology. I don't know where to go this week. Um, I think I'm going to recommend Ear Hustle, which I love so much, which is the new podcast, which is in, like recorded from inside San Quentin prison, where the prisoners kind of talk about their experience. But it's so like you hear prison and you're like, oh, it's going to be one of those. But it's actually done like it's like, how do you choose a roommate? Like that's what the first episode is about. And it's just so it's like the total internal anthropology of like which roommate's annoying, like which one just doesn't do this with his bed, which one doesn't wear deodorant. And then they kind of crash into these amazing roommate stories. And it's just like prison kind of normal, like a normal life inside a prison as if it were a college dorm. And so there's a series of things like that. The woman who hosts it is so charming. Anyway, I just I really love this podcast. So, you know, I believe that um, I believe your husband recommended it on the political gabfest last week. Oh, bastard. Um, that <laughs> was right. my show. All right. Um, well, I take it back because I recommended it to him. We should have a rule, me and David, that like whoever recommended it first to the other person gets to recommend it on their podcast. Um, well, OK, fine. I'm going to recommend a second thing, which is the Richard Reeves book, Dream Hoarders, which is the base, which which kind of is the book that David that inspired David Brooks to write his column about taking his working class friend to lunch, which got David Brooks in so much trouble on Twitter this week. Um, But anyway, this book, I feel like everyone should read this book. It's like how we like to talk about the evil 1%, but it's actually where the the evil ones are the 20%. um, And it's the systematic and cultural ways that the 20% are kind of locking everyone else out of opportunity. So I feel like um, it's really an interesting book uh, describing basically how you and all your friends are evil. So pick it up. (laughs) What's the the name of it? (laughs) The Dream Hoarders. Um, it's a book of sociology. It's by Richard Reeves, and it's it's uh, I think really important actually. It's like a mirror. Hold up the mirror. <laughs> All right. Well, that's our show. Thank you as always to our fabulous producer Virilyn Williams, our intern who helps us so much, Daniel Schrader. Um, if you would like to respond to us on the various things we asked, which are, have you ever just thought about not having children um, because of climate change or any other apocalypse? Um, and what do you think of Glow? Please, uh, why don't you go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash doublexgapfest. Leave us a comment and we will check it out. And if we get good ones, read them on the air. For June and Noreen, I'm Hannah Rosen. We will talk to you again in two weeks. Two, name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.